Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the Gospel of Luke. We'll be discussing the childhood of Jesus Christ and the trust that Mary and Joseph had in God's plan. So if you'll open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke chapter 2, we'll begin our lesson. We'll get started. Why don't I open us up in prayer? Heavenly Father, thank you again for this time and this group and the ability for us to gather together here in downtown Austin. We appreciate the fellowship and the time that we can spend in your word. And we ask that you have the Holy Spirit guide our discussions today. I ask that you speak through me through this lesson in a way that resonates with others and help us to continue to transform and become the people you want us to be. As we study the birth of Jesus Christ, our Savior, talk about that some more this morning. And Jesus is growing up as a child. We just thank you so much for the gift of your son and sending him because we're all messed up. And we know that we can't get right with you except for by putting our faith in your son, Jesus Christ, as our Lord and Savior. And we just thank you so much for giving us that gift that we receive. And thank you for your grace and your mercy towards us. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We were in Luke 2, and we didn't get finished with that. So we're in Luke 2 this morning. We're going to begin in verse 25. But just to set this up, if you missed last week, where we are in the story right now, we've had John the Baptist. He's been born. We've had Jesus born. Where we are in that part of the story is... Mary and Joseph have now actually come to Jerusalem for Mary's purification. I discussed that last time. That was in the Jewish law of what you were required to do after you gave birth. And there were certain requirements in the Old Testament Mosaic law. And we talked about that last time. That's where we are in the story. They're in Jerusalem. And let's just pick back up with where we left off. We're now in verse 25. And behold, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. So this Simeon person, he's probably a pretty old guy. I don't know why I think that, but I'm just guessing he's a pretty old guy. And he's got this belief from the Abrahamic covenant that there is going to be a Messiah that will come. And we see the Holy Spirit was upon him. You remember we've talked about this. In the Old Testament days, the Holy Spirit would be around you. So the Holy Spirit was present, but it wasn't until the New Testament and after Pentecost that you started seeing we as believers have the Holy Spirit living inside of us now. But the Holy Spirit is with Simeon, and we're going to see the Holy Spirit is going to be speaking to him. We see in verse 26, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he, this is Simeon, would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. So if you can imagine, he's coming to the temple. He comes every day. It's like, is this the day? Is this the day? And I'm thinking he's an older guy because it's kind of making the point that the Holy Spirit said that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah. And so he's coming every day just wondering, is this the day? Verse 27, And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him, so Simeon takes Jesus into his arms, and blessed God and said, 
So I'm going to read this little prayer, or it could be a song. It's praise, giving praise to God for the Messiah. It's definitely a song of praise, and you may be interested in this. This that we're going to read here in a minute is called the Nunc Dimittis. And what that means is, it means, now Lord. And if you see, it actually begins, now Lord. So that's where it gets its name, the first words to this song of praise. So Simeon, he's full of joy. He's one of the few Jews that actually really understands about Jesus being the Messiah who was sent to save all of us sinners from our sin. So he understands this. And before I read it, I want to take you over because he definitely is basing this on the Abrahamic covenant and what he believes in the Abrahamic covenant. We've talked about the Abrahamic covenant a lot, but let's just go over to, I'm going to show you two things real quick. Genesis 12 is where the promises were made by God to Abraham. Let's go over to Genesis 12. And this is where the promises were made. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, remember he was Abram before God changed his name to Abraham. And he says, he's telling Abraham, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house. So he's saying, I want you to leave everyone and I want you to go into the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. So he's promised land. He's promised a great nation is going to be made through his descendants. And he's going to make his name great. Look, we're still talking about him. And he says, and so you shall be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And This is the important part here. Uh, It's all important, but this is really important. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So we see in the promises here, there are basically three groupings. We've got the personal promises that are made to Abraham. We've got national promises for the nation of Israel. And we've got universal promises that the Messiah is going to be a descendant from Abraham's seed. And that will result in blessings are available to all the families of the earth, not just the nation of Israel. Let me show you also, just so you know where it is. Go over to Genesis 15, and this is where the covenant was actually made. I'll let you read it. I won't take you through that today. But this is where then the covenant was actually made with Abraham. I want to point out just a couple of things to you. If you look at Genesis 15, verse 6, this is where Abraham believed in the Lord. And you see it says, then he believed in the Lord, and he, being the Lord, reckoned it to Abraham as righteousness. So again, this is justification by faith. God counted his faith as the basis upon which to declare Abraham justified. And so God imputes this righteousness on the basis of his faith. This was some 14 years before he was ever circumcised and before the law was given to Moses. So it wasn't because of Abraham's works or good works. It was solely on the basis of his faith that he was declared righteous. So let's go back over to Luke 2. So we've got Simeon who believes in in the Abrahamic covenant, and he is waiting on this promised Messiah. And so he takes Jesus into his arms, we see in verse 28. And he blessed God, and he said, verse 29, Now, Lord, thou dost let thy bondservant depart in peace according to thy word. For mine eyes have seen thy salvation. 
which thou hast prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel. So you can see he's talking about this worldwide blessing that we read in Genesis 12 and it carries over into 15. Worldwide blessing of the Abrahamic covenant. And this revelation that all the Gentiles, all the nations would be blessed, this is a shock to the Jewish people. Because remember, they really viewed the Gentiles, non-Jewish people, as people who would never be saved because they didn't have Abraham's blood. They were sinners, they viewed, and they thought that the Jews were God's chosen people, which they were, but it wasn't enough just to have Abraham's blood. You had to have faith. And so what they were looking for is for this Messiah to come and get rid of the Romans who were ruling over them and set up the kingdom and rule and place all the Jewish people in the kingdom with him. And that's what they were really looking for. Let me just show you a couple of verses. Let me show you Galatians 3.28 first. Go over to the right, a bunch of books. Just keep going when you get to Corinthians. You're almost there. And I want to first look at Galatians 3.28. And it says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are one in Christ Jesus. So everyone's equal in Christ. We're all equal. Salvation is for all people who place their faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter what you are. When you place your faith in Jesus Christ, we're all equal. And there's only one way to the Father, and that's through Jesus Christ. And then I want to show you one other thing. You can see, though, Simeon understands this. Go over to the right, the next book, Ephesians 2.14. I'll just show you a couple of these. Ephesians 2.14 says, for he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is in the law of commandments contained in ordinances, that in him, that in himself, he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross, by it having put to death the enmity. So he's talking about bringing together Jew and Gentile, bringing them both to salvation when either Jew or Gentile places their faith in Jesus Christ. So that's what Simeon's talking about, uh, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. We see that in verse 32, in the glory of thy people Israel. So he's talking about both. And I'm back over in Luke 2, verse 33 And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. So, again, God, through his mercy and his grace, he's giving more confirmation to Mary and Joseph. That, look, this has even been revealed to Simeon. And look what he's saying about your son. Verse 34, And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and for a sign to be opposed. So Simeon's already telling him, look, you just need to know this. Your son is going to be opposed. He's going to be rejected. Verse 35, And a sword will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. The evil of man is going to be demonstrated by the way they reject Jesus, her son. 
And Mary is going to be heartbroken when she sees her son up on that cross. It's a terrible death that he died, but the reason why he was put up there is the Jewish people rejected him, and they wanted him nailed to a cross. And so here we see Simeon, just even at this point, telling Mary, and she doesn't fully comprehend all of this quite yet, and we'll see that here in just a minute, but Simeon's telling her that it's going to be tough for you. You think it's been tough up to this point. Remember, she's been carrying Jesus. She's been pregnant and not married, and people have probably been ridiculing her, and she's suffered a lot already, and Simeon's saying, look, it's going to get worse from here. So that's Simeon. Now let's pick up. We've got another very faithful female now. So we've seen Simeon who had been promised by the Holy Spirit that he wouldn't die until he had seen the Messiah. Now he's seen the Messiah. Now let's look. We're going to see a female. Verse 36. And there was a prophetess named Anna, the daughter of Phinuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years. So here's an older woman now. And having lived with a husband seven years after her marriage, so she had been married seven years, and then as a widow to the age of 84. And she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. So she's been praying for the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. So what we have here now, we've got two of God's very faithful servants having now received from the Holy Spirit the revelation about Jesus' birth. Pretty unbelievable. Now, when they call Anna a prophetess, this is probably, it wasn't that she was predicting the future or that type of thing. She was more likely just a teacher of the word, someone who explained the word. That's more likely the role that she served in as prophetess. Um, And her name, Anna, by the way, that name actually means grace which is very interesting to me. At that very moment, this is Anna, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is going on while Simeon's singing his song of praise. You've got Anna, and she's right there, and she's telling everyone, look, she's been looking for the redemption of Jerusalem, again, based on the Abrahamic covenant that we looked at. Verse 39, and when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, so this is the sacrifice and purification that we talked about last time, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. And the child continued to grow and become strong, increasing in wisdom, and the grace of God was upon him. This is important because remember, who's writing this? This is Dr. Luke writing this. And he wants you to know that the child continued to grow and develop normally, but was without sin. While this is just one, and we're going to read a little bit more here, this is one very short passage. It's kind of really all we're given about Jesus' childhood from being an infant to then his public ministry, which won't begin until he's 30. But Luke gives us a little glimpse And he's the only one, his gospel is the only one to give us this little glimpse about his childhood that we're going to be looking at here. And I think that's because Luke is a doctor and he wants people to see that this Messiah, yeah, he is 100% God, but he is 100% human. 
That's what Luke is depicting here, and he wants us to see that. The child continued to grow strong and increasing in wisdom. So he's growing physically, he's growing mentally in wisdom, and he's growing spiritually. The grace of God was upon him, the saving grace. Now, Jesus didn't need to be saved, okay? Jesus was without sin, but God was certainly upon him. And I think it's important for us to remember that what Jesus did before his incarnation He essentially relinquished his control over things to the Holy Spirit. So he had to grow up just like a human and relied on the Holy Spirit to teach him things along the way. I know this is a mystery and I don't totally understand how all that works. But Jesus, a lot of times people say, well, yeah, sure, he knew all of that because he's God. Well, yeah, but he also had to learn this stuff. Growing up as a human had to learn things like we do. He relinquished some of that power to the Holy Spirit to then teach him. Does that make sense? And that's what Luke is going to impress upon us here as we continue in this passage. Which is interesting, Larry, because he's God. Correct. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's. Thank you for joining us today. We'll continue our study of the Gospel of Luke. We'll be discussing the childhood of Jesus Christ and the trust that Mary and Joseph had in God's plan. So if you'll open up your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, we'll begin our lesson. Hard to wrap your head around that. Right. For instance, before he was incarnated, he could be everywhere at once. But by taking on the flesh of a human, he could no longer do that. He voluntarily relinquished that ability. Now, there were certainly still things that he could know. There's lots of places in Scripture where he would know what people were thinking even before they said it or what have you, or maybe the Holy Spirit imparted that back to him. I don't know how that all worked, but some things he still had, but other of his powers he relinquished voluntarily to the Holy Spirit. And that's why he would go and pray and seek the will of the Father. He wanted to be told the will of the Father, and so he prayed about it. He's God. You could say, well, he should have known. I mean, and he got, well, that's the human side of him also seeking the will of the Father. So it's a mystery, but that's what Luke, the doctor, is trying to bring out here, okay? Let's read on. Verse 41, And his parents used to go to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. I think it's important that Luke points out they went every year, okay? So what we're getting ready to read is just one of those times that they were there. But they're raising this child. They're being very faithful. They're doing what is required by the Jewish law at that time. In fact, they even go beyond that. I'll discuss that in just a minute. But they would go to Jerusalem every year. And Passover is just one of three annual feasts that the Jews would celebrate and recognize, along with the Feast of Pentecost and the Feast of Tabernacles. Those were the other two. And this time period, it usually lasted eight days. Now, not everybody even stayed the full eight days. By the way, men were required to come, but not women. But we're going to see that even Mary is accompanying both Joseph and Jesus on this trip. And it says his parents used to go every year. So Mary went every year. This isn't just a one-time thing. So now Luke's going to give us a little snapshot of one of those times that they were there at Passover. Verse 42. And when he, being Jesus, became 12, they went up there 
Remember, you always go up when you go to Jerusalem because of the elevation. When they went up there, according to the custom of the feast, and as they were returning after spending the full number of days, so that's the full eight days, they were there the entire time. And again, this is not an easy journey. It was probably 60 to 80 miles, three to four day journey to Jerusalem. But they stayed the full eight days. So as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem and his parents were unaware of it. So Jesus stays back. The men and women, you might say, I mean, how in the world do Mary and Joseph lose God? How can this happen? The men and women, while the big groups would travel together, usually the men would be in one group talking and the women would be in another. So you could see how this might happen. Those of you who have had kids, it can happen where it's like, I turn to Dare, hey, where is Lindley or where is Larry? Oh, I thought you had him. No, I thought you had him. It can happen, okay? It can happen. And so it happened. And they weren't aware. Each one thought Jesus was with the other. The other thing I want to point out before I read the rest of this, the way the Jewish customs were, as well as even some of the law, at 13, they had, you probably have heard this before, they had this thing, bar mitzvah. And that's when males were then held accountable to the law. They were now at the point that they had been taught, and this is now when they were held accountable to obey and follow the Mosaic law. And what they would do with the boys several years before they turned 13, the Passover time would be a time that they would also use to help prepare the boy for his responsibilities under the law, okay? So Jesus isn't there yet, all right? He's 12. You saw that. I'm just setting this up for you so you see what's about to happen. Verse 44, his parents thought him to be in the caravan, and so they went a day's journey. They'd already gone a day of the journey, and they began looking for Jesus among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem looking for him. They went all the way back to Jerusalem. And it came about that after three days, all right, they've been looking for Jesus for three days. That'd be kind of scary. To lose God for three days, that would be scary. (laughs) So they find Jesus in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers. Look at this. Both listening to them and asking them questions. Now, this is the only time that I'm aware of that Jesus is shown as a student. After this, he's always going to be shown as a leader. But here you see he is sitting in the midst of the teachers, but it's very interesting. He's listening to them, but he's also asking them questions. And we're going to see that some of the questions he was asking, they couldn't answer. This 12-year-old boy who they're supposed to be training, so next year he will become subject to the law, he's asking them some tough questions. Look, verse 47, And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding, and look, and his answers. So he's given some answers to some of the questions that they can't answer, perhaps. This is an impressive performance for someone age 12. He had the answers to the difficult questions. Verse 48, And when they saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us this way? Behold, your father and I have been anxiously looking for you. Talking about Joseph. And Jesus said to them, 
Why is it that you were looking for me? Did you not know that I had to be in my father's house? So Jesus knows who he is. He's the son of God. And at age 12, Jesus knows that he came to do God's will and do God's work. This is 18 years before his public ministry begins, which won't begin until he's 30. But the Holy Spirit has now enabled Jesus to understand who he is. He's 100% God. He's 100% man. The Holy Spirit has enabled him to grow in his wisdom, in his understanding of what God's will is for his mission here on earth. But others didn't quite understand. Look at verse 50. And they did not understand the statement which had been made to them. That's his parents. Mary has called Jesus my Savior, but Mary doesn't have this full understanding of the horrible death that Jesus is going to have to endure. This has not been revealed to Mary at this point. And you can see this. And when he went down with them, he came to Nazareth, and he continued in subjection to them. So he's still a child. And he willingly, even though he understands the mission, he still understands he's in subjection to his mother and to Joseph, his adopted father. And you see this? And his mother treasured all these things in her heart. So she's tucking these things away. She knows Jesus has a big mission. She doesn't fully comprehend it. She believes that he's the Savior. We've already seen that. She knows she's a sinner. We talked about that and that Jesus came to save all sinners. But she's just gathering these little bits and pieces along the way that God's allowing others to reveal to her. And we see, how does Luke close this out? Verse 52, And Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. So Luke, the doctor, again, he just wants you to know this child, I gave you a little snapshot of how he's growing both physically, mentally in wisdom and spiritually understanding what his role is. Uh, And this is coming from a doctor. So Luke is letting you know this is God, but this is also 100% human that is growing as you would expect. So the other gospels didn't really address this They didn't even talk about this. What I just read to you, this little part does not appear in the other Gospels. And actually, we hear no more about Jesus until he's introduced by John the Baptist. This is it in terms of his childhood. That's where we leave off his childhood. We got a little snapshot of it. But as I just sort of think about what we've seen now in the first two chapters of Luke, a lot have gone on in these two chapters that we've studied over the last, I guess this is the fourth week. It's so important to realize what Jesus's mission is and why God the Father sent Jesus the Son to take on this human body and to come and live a perfect life to show us how he wants us to live and then die a terrible death to pay the penalty for our sins because we can't live a perfect life and to give us the promise of eternal life with him instead of eternal separation from God. We all have the freedom to reject that God gave us free will and everyone can reject that free gift that God is offering us. Look at our culture. Everybody wants to focus on themselves and think they can get there their own way. But the Bible is clear. There's only one way to the Father and that's through the Son. And what an amazing plan that 
as I even referenced the Old Testament prophecies, many of those fulfilled that we discussed several weeks ago already to this point. You just can't make this stuff up. I mean, this book has been written over thousands of years, and we see these prophecies being fulfilled. It's just amazing. all of the prophecies? Well, all the prophecies have not yet been fulfilled, as we saw even in the Abrahamic covenant, the promise of the kingdom that will happen in the millennium. So there's prophecies that have not been fulfilled yet. But as I went through a couple of weeks ago, and I didn't even give you all of them, but everything from a virgin birth to being born in Bethlehem to growing up in Nazareth to John the Baptist being the forerunner. I mean, the the list just goes on and on and on. He's a descendant of Abraham and David, the Davidic covenant. There's just so many prophecies and everything lines up and it all connects. It's an amazing plan that God had for our salvation because we can't do it on our own. That was the whole purpose of the law was to show there's no way for us to keep it. I've had some people say, yeah, I was going to read the Bible. I started in Genesis and I got to Leviticus and I just quit, which is where most people do quit because you start seeing all these legal, all these requirements, requirements, laws and laws, and there's no way you can keep all that. And that was the whole point to show, yeah, you can't do it on your own. I mean, Jesus lived a perfect life, but he's the only one. And it's just through our faith. And then when you look at Mary and even what Simeon was saying to Mary, I mean, here's Mary, God's mother, chosen by the grace of God. And yet look at the pain that she's already had to endure. Okay, we don't see a lot of it, but we just know from the culture that would have been really, really tough. And now she's being told, well, just wait. When you see the suffering that your son, the Messiah, is going to go through, even Mary had to suffer immense pain. And so when we're going through our little trials and tribulations, I mean, they aren't anything like what we see. Well, you even think of the apostles and the terrible deaths they all endured, all martyrs except John, and John was in exile. God uses these difficult times in our life, if we let him, to either draw us into a closer relationship or draw others into a closer relationship with him as they see the peace that we have even through our pain and suffering. It's tough when you're going through a difficult time to say, thank you, God. But if we can just all say, wow, as I read all these wonderful people and what they had to go through and how God used that in a very positive way in their life. That's just God wanting to make us more Christ-like, taking us through these trials. It's hard to do when you're going through it, but we should expect God to work in unobvious ways at times. We may not understand it, but he wants to work in each of our lives through those difficult times and help us see how he wants us to live which then just tells me we also need to share the gospel with others because how did we all come to faith? It wasn't that we woke up one day and out of the blue go, you know, I think I'll believe in Jesus today. It took somebody explaining it to us. And that's what we're left here. That's why we're here. I always ask you guys, so why are you here? Yeah, it's to take care of our family or those of us who have family. Sure, but more importantly... It's to get the good news of the gospel out to others. So I'll leave it at that. What questions do you have? What's resonated with you? How can we apply this in our lives? You know, 
I'm not a Bible scholar, but you know, God has put me here uh, every Tuesday that I can get to you guys, and it's wonderful that we can share all of, you know, I resonate with what you're saying, and then with James, it talks about consider it pure joy, no matter what the trials and tribulations are that we're going through on this side of heaven, that God puts things in front of us every single day, and that if we can focus on Him instead of how we're going to control it, but what His plan is, and that it's going to come out in a good way no matter what, because it tells us that in the Bible, that we can walk with a confidence that will give us peace. I think that's what we're all looking for. You nailed it right there. That is so true, and yet it's so hard for us to do. And I know for myself, when I am in a difficult situation and I start getting upset about it or I'm frustrated because it wasn't something I'd planned that day, it just shows I'm not trusting God. Instead of whatever happens, to be able to just say, okay, God, wow, okay, I wasn't expecting this. I don't necessarily like it, but you're at work. What are you doing here? Are you trying to teach me something, or is this for somebody else? But just, you know, how can I be a servant and do what you want me to do through this difficulty? I'm not good at that. I want to be better, for sure. Thank you for that. I think it's so interesting that uh, when he was in the temple, he was asking these questions, and they were, it said they were amazed at the answers he was giving. And it, it's funny to me, because obviously it says he was growing in, in stature and in wisdom, so he was still learning things. But it's sort of his style, right, to ask questions. Someone went through and said that Jesus asked 307 questions. In the New Those Testament, are just the ones that are recorded. Exactly. Uh, yeah. But yeah, they, they've recorded a lot more questions than answers, but his questions aren't necessarily always like, hey, I'm looking for information. What's the answer to this question? Some of the, the fun examples is he likes to teach and, and challenge us and help us come to the conclusions through asking us questions. And so I'm wondering if, if even when he was in the temple, he was asking these sort of like almost semi-rhetorical questions. Rhetorical. Yeah, where it's like, hey, I know the answer and I'm about to give it to you, but let me ask you first so that you think about it, so that you, I get those wheels turning. I'm so glad you shared that because I was talking about mentorship with somebody here recently. And I was describing some of the mentors that I've been blessed to have in my life. And the best mentors that I've had, they'd listen to, I'd explain whatever I was struggling with, and they never gave me the answer. They asked questions. They asked me questions that would walk me through as I answered the questions that then I would arrive at the answer. I just appreciate you connecting those dots because, yeah, I think that's what Jesus was doing a lot was not only by the way he lived. I mean, he also lived his life as an example for us. But when he was working with his disciples and even the parables and stories and things, you know, they weren't immediately obvious, but you had to think through it instead of just being told the answer. That's really good. Good stuff. And we should keep that in our mind when we're discipling and mentoring others. Don't just give them the answer because a lot of times my mentors didn't even know the answer, but they knew the right questions to ask that would lead to helping me come up with what is the right answer for me in that situation. I think many times they didn't know the answer, but they knew how to guide me in a thought process with lots of good questions. So I think that's something good for us all to think about, even with our kids, for those of you who have kids, rather than just say, do this, ask some questions to lead them to developing their own thinking and wisdom. That's great. I have a question. When do you think that Mary and Joseph realized that their son had the supernatural powers and 
you know, why would they think of him as just their human son? And when would they have known that he has the powers? And, well, certainly, and not to worry about him as the Son of God. Certainly Mary, by the time Jesus' first miracle at the wedding feast, when they ran out of wine, Mary knew Jesus could take care of it. She probably didn't know how it was going to happen, but remember she just said, whatever he says, listen to him, you know. <laughs> so she clearly knew something by then. She knew he was God because that's how she became pregnant. But her full understanding, I don't think she fully understood that he was going to have to be crucified. I mean, that was difficult to sit up there and look at her son up there and wonder, okay, so how is this fulfilling? She's probably a little bit also thinking, where's the conquering king? Certainly all the disciples thought that. I think she had a better understanding than they did. But in terms of what all did she know and when did she know it, I I think that was a process, too, for her. And I think that's why God keeps giving her these anchor points. When Elizabeth was pregnant and she went and visited with her and just knowing that Elizabeth was so old and that was a miracle. So beginning to see these miracles happen and see what Simeon said and Anna, the prophetess, and you know, you start getting all these things that at least help strengthen your faith. I don't think she ever lost faith. She never abandoned Jesus, even though the disciples did. Well, the three wise men showing up too at his birth. Exactly. So all these little things, God, through his grace, keeps giving her some things that can help strengthen and assure her that just trust in the Lord. Angel Gabriel told her, if you go back to Luke 1, 32, He'll be great. He'll be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom there will be no end. Right. And so think of what all the Jewish people, and Mary's Jewish, they're all thinking, okay, these Romans have been ruling over us, and the angel Gabriel told me that you're going to give me a son, and he's going to rule. And then you look up and see him on the cross. It's like, okay. It didn't work, work out like I thought it would. Yeah, I mean, she knows he's destined, though, at this point, the age of 12. You just wonder what those years were like. But his brothers and sisters didn't believe that he was God. I like the Simeon and Anna. It's like these folks appear out of nowhere, but they didn't appear out of nowhere. It was intentional and enabled based on their faith by the Holy Spirit. And it just kind of goes to show you that deep level of faith. You never really know what might be presented to you as long as you're awake and not asleep at the wheel, so to speak. Right. It says Anna was up in age. I'm guessing Simeon was too. And just to continue on with that faith every day, showing up at the temple every day, every day. Is this going to be the day? Is this going to be the day? I'm not giving up. I'm trusting what God told me. I'm trusting God's plan. Tremendous faith. How can we do that? What are the areas in our life that we give up? You know, we might keep praying. Maybe there's been some things we've been praying about in our heart and We don't feel like it's been answered, although God always answers everything. Yes, no, or wait. Maybe we're supposed to wait, just like these two have been waiting. And then we decide God needs help. That's when we really mess it up. Hey, I'll I'll ask a question. It's more of a thought than a question, but the part about Jesus being lost for three days, put myself in that shoes as a parent. We live in the world of helicopter parents, and I'm one of them, right? You know, you lose your kids for five minutes, and you think the world is done. Mm-hmm. You know, so I can't imagine having lost my kid for three days. Yeah, I can't imagine how Mary and Joseph felt at that time. 
And yet God used that. I bet those three days they were just like beside themselves. And yet then they go and they see Jesus sitting there in the temple. So God used that terrible thing to all of a sudden. They had to go through it. They had to go through that difficulty. But then God gives them another place to anchor, you know, another look at where he is. And everyone's amazed at the way he's answering questions. And he's 12. So they go through this really difficult time. And yet God's got a plan. And he turns that terrible situation from their point of view into something, uh, yet another place that bolsters their faith, enables them to grow in their faith. And that's what he wants to do with us when we're going through our difficult times. we got to trust him. Yeah. Well, Larry, I was thinking, you know, my background as a pilot, uh, we have an emergency procedure in the F-18 that we have to know by memory, and it's out-of-control flight. So it's when, you know, the jet is no longer flying anymore, right? And it's a fly-by-wire aircraft, and when it when it doesn't fly anymore, it's a pretty scary feeling because it's literally falling out of the sky. But the first step in the emergency procedure is controls release. That's the first step. So when your life is out of control... The first step should be controlled release. And I can tell you there, you know my story. I did not do that in my life. And because I didn't put faith in Jesus first. And that ends now. So, anyways, just thought I'd share that. That's really good. Yeah, I appreciate that. That's helpful to all of us. Controls release. We can just remember that. Thank you for joining us today. I'd love to hear from you. If you have any questions or comments, you can reach out to me at LarryO'Donnell.com. You can also sign up to receive this weekly podcast and my weekly blog at LarryO'Donnell.com. I hope you'll join us next time as we continue our study.